This is episode 251 with three-time collegiate national champion, two-time Olympian, world silver medalist in the 10K, and NBC sports analyst, Kara Goucher. Welcome to the Strength Running Podcast. I'm your host, Coach Jason Fitzgerald, and this episode features one of the best runners the United States has ever seen. Kara Goucher is a mother, wife to Adam Goucher, a track and field analyst for NBC, and one of the most decorated American runners of the last few decades. She represented the United States in the 2008 and 2012 Olympics, placed third at the Boston Marathon, and won silver at the 2007 World Championships in the 10,000 meters. Today, we're focusing on how she handles pressure. If you're new to the Strength Running Podcast, this show features training conversations, coaching calls, and experts in the running space to elevate your thinking about the sport. I want to help you make wiser decisions about your training so that you can keep improving. Because if you better understand the process of improvement, when you recognize knowledge as a competitive advantage, you'll be a much better runner. But Strength Running is not just a podcast. Don't miss our growing YouTube channel, where we have hundreds of videos on injury prevention for runners, short strength workouts specific to running, mantras, and more. Go to youtube.com slash strengthrunning, subscribe, and you'll see every video that we publish. And of course, strengthrunning.com is where it all began. Since 2010, we've been helping runners around the world improve with our award-winning blog, our free email courses on strength training, nutrition, injury prevention, and improving your mindset. Plus, all of Strength Running's training programs and coaching services to help you accomplish your biggest running goals. You can learn more about those at strengthrunning.com coaching. This episode is brought to you by Inside Tracker, one of my favorite companies that's investing heavily in the running community. They test your blood for dozens of biomarkers so you know if there are any red flags with your physiology that might be holding back your running. Then they give you science-backed recommendations to improve anything that might be outside of your personal optimal range. Get 25% off any of their blood tests with code STRENGTHRUNNING at insidetracker.com slash strengthrunning. The code is STRENGTHRUNNING with no space, and all those details can be seen at insidetracker.com slash strengthrunning. We're also supported by Tannery Outdoors, a sponsor from last year coming back on the show. They make reef-safe, cruelty-free sun care, and their products are made by runners for runners. The packaging is sustainable, and they even offer refills for some of their products so you can pass on that extra plastic. You can now get 10% off with code JASON at checkout at tannery.com. That's T-A-N-R-I dot com, and the code JASON does not have to be capitalized. All right, my guest today likely needs no introduction. Kara Goucher was one of the most dominant runners in the United States for years, having placed third at the Boston Marathon, earning her spot on two Olympic teams, being a world silver medalist, and also winning the U.S. Half Marathon Championships. She is now retired from competitive running, but still very much involved in the running community as an athlete advisor for Wazell and Ultra, as well as being a sports analyst and broadcaster for NBC Sports. In this conversation, we're mostly focusing on pressure and how Kara has managed pressure 
at the high school, collegiate, and professional levels, as well as the pressure she feels today. We also explore what it's like to be a sports commentator, the prep that's required, why the TV channels always seem to cut away from your favorite races, and more. Without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with the one and only Kara Goucher. Kara Goucher, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm excited to be on. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Well, I want to start with the really hard-hitting questions, the issue that every listener wants us to address, and that's obviously when you and Des Linden are going to be starting your Two With These Deep podcast. When is that going to happen, Kara? This is an actual real thing, and we've been chatting about it. We're just both really busy right now, um, but this is actually going to happen. And no we, way. Yes. We, we both I mean, she's still competing. I'm not. But we see eye to eye on so many things. And I wish we had been um, friends earlier. You know, I wish we had been friends like when I was still competing. But we have a lot, even though we're very, very different people, we have a lot of things that we align on. And um, so we're this is happening. But I just can't. It might not be till the fall. I don't know. But it's happening. Yeah, well, I'm really excited because this ended up being this was like a Twitter joke for a little while. And I definitely chimed in and said that the running community (laughs) desperately needs this. Yeah, it started a joke. And then I messaged her (laughs) and I was like, we should actually do this. And she's like, I'm a thousand percent in. So we we are doing it. We actually just chatted about it a couple days ago. So but you might have to wait a bit longer. She's kind of busy and things are going on, but it will happen. I love it. So you guys are going to drink some whiskey, hopefully have more than one and then talk about some interesting issues in the world of running. I can't wait. Well, she'll probably be drinking whiskey. I'll probably be drinking beer, but we will, alcohol will be involved. Yes. (laughs) Terrific. (laughs) All right. Now that we've really covered the deep stuff, um, I do want to explore the topic of pressure with you. And, And I think you're a really great person to talk to about this topic um, because of how long you've been running and the many phases of your career that you've experienced, you know, you start experiencing pressure, I think, very early in your career when you were in eighth grade, you were beating most high school runners as a middle schooler. What was your first memory of experiencing a lot of pressure? Was it coming from you? Was it coming from somewhere else? It always came from within and and also comments that were not meant to be pressure, but as like a young 13, 14 year old girl, I, I took in as pressure. I would say the first time I, it really, really bothered me was my freshman year of high school. I was undefeated. I was expected to win the state meet and I was so nervous. I felt like I had to do this for my school, for my coach, for my family, for my teammates. And I had never felt that way before to the point, like I could, I was on the starting line. I couldn't breathe. I just felt like I, I have to just get this over with. And obviously, I mean, I think runners will know that the race didn't go well because you don't run well when you're feeling like that. I led for a long time and then faded into fifth. And that was the first time that I had felt so much pressure that it actually affected uh, the way I performed. And that that is sort of a, unfortunately, sort of like a something that danced with me throughout my entire career. I've always felt a lot of pressure and it's when I've managed it that I've run better. But yeah, I would say ninth grade was the first time it really really got to me. At what point did you start being pretty good with pressure? Did you learn any coping strategies that you found were particularly helpful? Um, Because I imagine as someone who started experiencing all this pressure because of your talent so early in your career, it probably was something that you had to learn to figure out relatively early. Is that right? 
Yeah. I mean, I, I know that my mom and I talked about it at one point she had, I was a dancer as well. So she had me go to this therapist where you sort of express your anxiety through dancing, but I was so self-conscious that I couldn't, I, it didn't really help. Right. So I really just, when I was younger, relied on my teammates. Um, we had a really good team and my coach, uh, would always tell me to focus on the team. So he would help shift my focus to, doing the best I could, whether that's winning or being 10th, but that's less points and we're going to do better. So I didn't really have any professional help at a younger age. And honestly, in college, it was quite similar. I was dinged up for the beginning. Then I started running really well. I won a couple national titles. And then I just started to feel this intense pressure of that I had to win everything my senior year, that I had to do it with these really fast times and these big, big gaps. And um, at that time, I was being coached by Mark Wetmore, who I would meet with him in his office, and he would kind of try to help me um, remember, like, I've done the training to be here, that kind of stuff. But honestly, I didn't get professional help until I graduated from college. And um, I just I just needed help. I couldn't see beyond the failures that I thought I had had. I couldn't, I couldn't get anywhere in running because I couldn't moved on, you know, I just felt so much pressure. And so I started seeing someone right after my senior year of college. And I worked with him and other therapists. I mean, until now, I still see therapists, actually. So uh, I wish I had started earlier, but it wasn't really talked about when I was younger, you know, like race, anxiety, pressure. And even in my elite career, it's it was sort of like a toughness, like you don't need help, just tough it out, you have to be tough. And that kind of stuff really actually hurt me because I was tough. Um, but I still had all these very real feelings and emotions and I didn't know what to do with them. Yeah, I think it's hard to differentiate between that level of toughness that I think is present in so many competitive runners, you know, pro and sub elite and and even those runners who are, are never going to be lighting up the track. You know, there's a certain level of toughness in almost every runner, I think. Uh, but then to differentiate that with the normal anxiety that we all experience before a race. And I, I think it can often be refreshing to hear someone like you talk about how you did feel pressure before races and you did feel all this anxiety about how you were felt like you had to perform, you were supposed to perform in a certain way. And, and that can be really challenging. Do you find that the anxieties became different when you went professional, you know, from your high school days, your college days, you know, when you started being paid to run as a professional runner, do you have a different mindset about pressure from whether it was your sponsors or traveling more to big international races? Paint us a picture of what that looked like. Yeah. I mean, when I first started getting into international racing, like I, I wasn't that good yet. I hadn't made that leap and I got into races because my husband was really, really good. And so they would, they wanted him to come. And then I was kind of like the side, like, okay, we'll let his wife come, you know? Um, so I felt pressure because I felt like my husband was putting his reputation on the line to get me into this meet, you know? Um, but also I, I think I felt a lot of more pressure sponsorship wise and things like that as I got a bigger contract. And then it was like, they're paying me a lot of money and they expect me to do these really big things. And also sort of the the feedback that I got back was, you know, third isn't good enough. You know, we have to win. And that's tough because 
you can do everything right and still be 10th, right? I mean, you can't control what anyone else does. And so that's the kind of stuff where I would really start to spiral. I remember like some of my first international races, I'd be on the starting line and I'd be like, I don't belong here. I never ate an organic food until two years ago. I grew up on spam. I'm from Northern Minnesota. Like, how did I get here? But I, I was working with a psychologist at the time and I started to use these tools to like calm myself down, remind myself I did the work to be here. But so many times in my career, I'd line up and look around some, with my idols, you know, and I'd be like, what am I doing here? Um, but I think that's like, I think a lot of people feel that way. And, you know, I trained with Shalane Flanagan for a while and I'm vocal about my nervousness. I'm vocal about the anxiety. I'm, if I'm nervous about a workout or before, I will say it. And, you know, she said to me once, here, we all get nervous. Like we just don't shout it out like you do, you know? <laughs> So I do think that a lot of people feel that, but they don't feel like they can share it. And I, I mean, I was embarrassed for a really long time that I had such pre-race anxiety, especially pre-race anxiety. Um, I felt embarrassed. I felt like it was a weakness. Like everyone else is going to the line ready to just kick ass. And I'm scared. I don't even know if I belong here. But honestly, talking about it made it seem like, oh, it doesn't have as much control over me. You know what I mean? I'm not as like once I started talking about it a little bit during my professional career, it felt less and less like it controlled me. It was more like, yep, that's part of the puzzle. I have to work on that. But it doesn't it's not like this dark cloud that I know is going to come and I don't want anyone to know that it's going to come and I'm embarrassed that it's going to come. Does that make sense? Sorry, I'm kind of rambling. No, I love it. I, and I think it it almost makes that feeling more predictable. It almost makes it a, a very normal human feeling when you can talk about it, you can label it, you can analyze it from so many different perspectives. And I'm no doubt that as soon as you started sharing these things, I'm sure many of your close professional runner friends came to you and said, hey, I struggle with this too. Or you know, all these stories must have come out of the woodwork. And you realize that, hey, I'm not alone so many other elite and professional athletes are experiencing this as well. And it be becomes an, a normal thing. And, uh, you know, I, I experienced that just being on a cross country and track team in high school and college, you know, we, we were all nervous before races. And, and I think that is one of those really human elements of running that is true, no matter if you're a beginner runner in high school, you just started running and you're 48 years old, or you're running around the world as a professional athlete. It's just a constant. Yeah. I mean, I, I used to run like little quarter mile races when I was young, young, and I would be nervous before that, right? With no expectation. I didn't know what a time was. I didn't know who was in the race. It was usually just me against boys. And I get nervous. And that's one thing too, like, you can embrace the nerves to a certain extent, because that just means you care. That just means you're attempting to do something that you've worked hard for that you care about. It means something to you. I think where it crests is where it, when it becomes sort of crippling and it sort of affects the way you perform and you, you can't perform as well as you had trained to because it just became crippling. And so that's kind of that line that I really fought my whole career and still do at times in life is, um, you know, being nervous or excited or wanting to do well is one thing, but being so nervous and terrified and anxious and running it through my head that now I actually perform poorly is something else. I think that's a really good point to acknowledge that a certain level of anxiety is normal. And it, it's also something that it means that you care about what you're about to do. And it also means that you're more physiologically ready to do something very physically demanding. Because if you weren't 
you know, in that higher state of arousal, you probably wouldn't be able to throw down a peak performance or race to your potential. So I see a lot of, you know, just utility in being slightly nervous before a race. You know, you don't want to be sitting there with the same feeling like when you're scrolling through Netflix on the couch, you want to be a little more up for that. Uh, But at the same time, like you said, you don't want it to be crippling. Now, what did you find was helpful when when you were dealing with some of those more crippling feelings of anxiety? You know, you've talked about having conversations with your mom, with your coaches, uh, even with uh, a professional. What did you find was the most effective in helping you with that pre-race anxiety? Yeah, I think this is important because everybody responds differently. Like Mark Wetmore had me like lay down, close my eyes and imagine myself running through the course. And I would sit up like 10 seconds later, you know, and he'd be like, no, 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 no. You haven't even hit a quarter mile yet. Lay back down. So that didn't work for me. Like deep breathing stuff didn't work for me. I would just feel more tense because now I'm trying to control my breath. So everyone's different. That stuff does work for some people. For me, the things that worked were really acknowledging that I know this is going to come on. So what am I going to do about it? And I did a lot of picking mantras, picking power words, and I would usually pick a different mantra or power word depending on like what the big goal was. If it's a track season and I'm trying to qualify for world championships, or if it's I'm training for the Boston Marathon, I would always have something different. But honestly, just like really repeating that to myself in the good days and the bad days, because mental mental toughness or mental strength, you have to practice it just like you have to work out your body. And if you aren't practicing that stuff in practice, then you aren't going to be able to pull on it during race day. So I would repeat these mantras to myself, repeat um, these power words. But the thing that helped me the most, um, Dr. Stephen Walker, who unfortunately passed away last December, he would have me write every day. So I'm like a logbook keeper. I've had one since 1994. Every day I write what I did running wise. I still keep one even though I'm not training for anything. Um, but he, I had a second one. And every day I had to write something positive about what I was doing, working towards whatever my big goal was. And sometimes you have a terrible workout. And those were the days where I would write bad workout, you know, ran as well as I could. Um, and But I, I got through it. Or I'd have to pick something like kind of tanked on the last repeat, um, need to find more strength, but at least I know where the limit is right now, you know, just like something positive. And that flipping through that confidence journal in a week leading up to the big event would be so helpful because it's one thing when Adam tells me I'm the most amazing runner or my coaches tell me I'm doing great, but we're our harshest critics. So to be able to flip through there and see all of that, it would really remind me like I've done the work. I'm only asking myself to do something that I prepared to do. And here I am in my own words, telling me all the things I've done to be ready for this moment. And so I think mantras and keeping a confidence journal, those were the two things that helped me the most in my career. I have been a huge believer in keeping a handwritten analog training journal for a long time. And when you started talking about this, I I don't know if you noticed, I started lighting up a little bit. Looking over here, I have an entire stack of training journals going back to 1998. And I absolutely love looking through these because it's just such this time capsule of how you were feeling and what you were doing and where you were running and who you were running with. And it's just this incredible snapshot of this like moment in time of your life. Now, I love you writing one positive thing every day. Now, I assume this is something that has power, not when you do it 
once or even for a whole week. This has to be done very regularly and consistently, right? Yeah, it has to, because otherwise you're just going to go, oh, I forgot. I had a good workout. I'll write that in. But you don't write in the bad days where you still push through. You don't write in the struggles where you survived, right? And so that's the importance of it. It's like you've weathered the storms to be here. And yeah, you had 80% of this. You cracked these workouts. It was amazing. But this 20 to 30% that didn't go well, you weathered that. Like you're tougher than you think you are. And so like when I do tell people or they ask me, I say, promise yourself you'll do it every day for a month. You know, make it a part of the routine. Because if you just do it here and there, it doesn't have the same effect. It really has to be, if you're diligently keeping track of your training, do it at the same time. That's what I would always do. I still do right before I go to bed. And um, there's something so powerful in seeing your own handwriting complimenting yourself because we just don't do that. You know what I mean? Where you're like, I don't know. It's just really powerful to see like my own voice, my own words and complimenting myself, telling myself I'm doing what was needed to get to where I am. Yeah, I think it's really valuable, especially when you do get to look back on all of those little things, all of those little tiny memories of uh, that gave you strength over time. And uh, I think it's I think it's a really important part of reflecting on your training because it can be really easy just to have your Strava log and it automatically uploads and then there's no reflection. And I think the reflection is where the real magic happens. I totally agree. Like I'm laughing because all of my logbooks since 1994 are right next to me here. I think they're, you know, and also sometimes when we look back, if we don't write these things down and we don't like reflect on it, maybe we'll only remember the good or we'll only remember the bad. But if you have it all there and you look through and it's your, it's my messy handwriting telling me what I did, it just helps you see the big picture of what you've gone through to be here. And it helps you feel more ready and appreciate the moment. Now, can I ask you what mantras were particularly powerful for you? I know you said they were changing and I think that's a great thing. You know, during my career, I had very serious mantras and I had hilarious mantras that I would never share in public, <laughs> but all these little words and phrases that helped me in the moment when things got tough. I was wondering what was helpful for you. Yeah. So when the first time I really dialed into a mantra, probably was 2007. And my mantra was fighter. I'm not the most talented. I'm not the, I don't have the most experience, but I'm going to fight till, till I die. Essentially, you know, I'm going to die out there on the track fighting. And so I tell that to myself in practice, I tell it to myself on good days, on bad days. And then I did qualify for the world championships that year. And I said that to myself the whole time in the 10,000 race in Osaka. And even towards the end, I had fallen back into fifth place, which by the way, would have been like a huge performance for me because I had never even been to the world championships before. But I kept saying, are you fighting? Is everything left out there? Fight, fight, fight. And that's how I was able to sort of get myself into a medal position. Um, I remember in Boston in 20... 13, I had been really struggling with injuries. I hadn't put together super solid training. And so my mantra at that point was have the courage to believe in yourself, courage to believe, courage to believe. And that's what I just kept telling myself, like, you've been here before, you know, the course, you know, this distance, have the courage to believe in yourself. And so it would always change. Sometimes it would be like scrappier. And sometimes it would be more like, inspirational, but it was kind of like where I am in my life. If I was feeling really confident, then it would be a more scrappy word, you know? Um, and if I was struggling, then it would be a little bit more kinder to myself, like find it within yourself. 
You know, I've talked to a lot of sports psychologists about this, and it's very interesting that for mantras to actually work, for them to be effective, they have to be personalized in some way. And so it's it's really uh, affirming to hear you say that they changed all the time. And, and it sort of depended on where you were in your life, in your training, what you needed at the time. And I think that's a really good lesson for our listeners who might get started with mantras, because um, I know... I find them to be very helpful. Uh, it just depends on what race you're running and what your psychology is like. You know, you probably have a different mantra for the 1500 than you do for the marathon. Totally. I mean, like the summer of 06 was my first summer where I raced a full European season in the big races. And my mantra the whole time was you belong, you know, because that was what was holding me back. I'd get on the line and I look around and I think, I read about these women every day on the internet and now I'm standing next to them. And, but I belong here. I earned my spot here. I deserve to be here. You know? So I think I've read other people's mantras and I'm like, Ooh, I want to try that. But then when I'm out running, it doesn't actually resonate with what I'm trying to do. So it's good to like think of a bunch and then try them out when you're running and then it will come to you. Yeah. That's great advice right there. Now, Kara, do you experience pressure today? Now you mentioned that you're not competing anymore. You know, you're not doing a full European track season these days, but you know, you're commenting on racing, you're kind of entering in this new phase as a, a broadcaster and sports analyst. And you're also just sort of a pillar in the running community. And, and I'm just wondering, how do you feel pressure these days? Yeah, I think I'll probably always feel pressure. I think it's part of my personality, but I also think it's just like a human feeling, right? You always want to be the best version of yourself. You always want to do things well. I do feel pressure in commentating because there's a million other people who would love the job. And not only that, I'm trying to do the athletes justice. I want them to go back and be able to watch the race and be like, yeah, Kara represented me well, or she described that well. And so I feel a lot of, I do feel a lot of pressure there. You know, like I just called Prefontaine and I was a little rusty and I felt like, ugh. Um, then when I went back and watched it, I was like, okay, it wasn't that bad, you know? Um, but I do feel pressure there. I feel pressure to pronounce names right, to remember everyone's stats. Um, but I do feel just pressure, other pressure. Yeah, I do. I feel like I really want to embrace the running community. I want to know they can come to me. And sometimes I might not always say the right thing or do the right thing. And I feel like now with social media, now that I really am involved in social media, things like just get echoed more than before where I would maybe make a mistake and then I don't have to hear about it from a hundred other people or whatever. Um, but I think pressure is a normal feeling. I think it's just wanting to be good at what you're doing. Um, doing the best you can do in the situation you're in. But I do. Yeah, I feel pressure for sure. Do you consider yourself someone who holds yourself to a high standard? Yeah, I think so. I think it's the way I was raised by my my grandpa, especially and my mom that, yeah, like you really need to be, not that it's a negative thing, but let's be the best version of ourselves that we can be. And sometimes when you really are obsessed with that, there's no room to stumble. And that's, just unrealistic. Everybody's going to stumble. So I, I have worked to be more gentle with myself, to be more forgiving of myself. I think a lot of us feel that way. We're, we are our harshest critics. I mean, since the time I ever felt anxiety in my life till now, it's usually coming from me or it's something that someone said that's like, I'm just turning it over and over and over again. And I'm the one hanging on to it. So I think that's just sort of in my DNA, but I actually think it's in a lot of people's DNA. 
Yeah, for sure. And the reason why I asked is because I was hearing a lot of myself in your answer and just having pressure and wanting to do things right, do, do a good job to hold yourself to a, to a certain standard. And, and I think, you know, at a certain level, there's a lot of good in that because it, it makes you strive to be better at whatever you're doing. And I think there's nothing wrong with that. But like you said, there's certainly a, a, a point of no return where you're going a little <laughs> bit too far with that. Yeah, I do want to talk a little bit more about broadcasting because I think this is really fascinating. Uh, you know, right now you're working for uh, NBC, I believe. Like you mentioned, you were just at the Prefontaine Classic calling races. Uh, I think you're going to be at the USATF Championship next month. Um, I'm just curious, what does it look like for you to prepare to go to a big race like this and call a bunch of track races? What does your prep look like? Um, it's a lot, but I I do feel like that if you don't like, so for instance, Prefontaine, I didn't have a ton of prep because my son had his last week of school. Obviously there's a national tragedy. I was really emotional about that. And so I think it showed in my performance. Um, it, it takes just reading it. So just like you were saying before you like to write it out, I get sheets of information. I get articles, but I need to write it out. That's how it imprints in my brain. So it's, it's hours and hours and hours of like reading, highlighting, um, I like to read an article that hasn't been sent to me on every single person in every single field. And so, and, and honestly, sometimes I know that I overprepare because the race hat starts, the camera focuses on the top people and all these things you learned are just out. They're not in the picture, but I feel way more confident that way um, than if I just know their PRs or know what they did at world champs last year. So yeah, I mean, at the Olympics, I would say, I would get up, I would do a little workout, I'd study for an hour, I'd go to the track, work for a few hours, come back to my room, study for six hours, go back to hit for the evening, and then do it all over again. And the last few days were really stressful because we had track events, but also the marathoners. And, you know, marathon, you're talking for two and a half, three hours. So, um, but there's also like, it's also kind of fun. You're like, it, I mean, I, I don't miss school, but in some ways it reminds me of like, you're getting in that groove and you're really studying and you're really getting confident and you know what you know. And so the more I prepare, the more confident I feel and the more I feel like I do a better job for the athlete. Yeah. And let's talk about that. You're, you've, you've mentioned twice now that you think a big part of your job when you're commentating is, you know, to do a certain service for the athlete themselves when they're out there on the track. What do you consider your job to be when you're commenting on races? Is it is it for the athletes? Is it for the audience? Um, is it for someone else? Yeah, I mean, we're always wanting more viewership of track and field. And there's, you know, there's always debates going on of what's right and what's wrong. And some of the suggestions are helpful and some of them are not. Um, but for me, my job is to, uh, how I feel it is, I don't want anyone that's flipping through the channel to change the channel when a race I'm calling is on. I want them to be roped in. And I want to humanize the athletes. Um, that's like one of my bigger things is I feel like we, we, we talk about records so much and this and that, and that's exciting. Of course it's exciting, but all the people watching probably can't really relate to what, uh, you know, for uh, sub four minute, 1500 per woman feels like but they can relate to someone who had a child. They can relate to someone who overcame an injury, to someone who just lost a parent. And that's kind of, I just want to sort of humanize the athletes because 
I be, I do think sometimes we become, obviously great performances are awesome and exciting, but we become so focused on that, that we lose the fact that these are real human beings that are trying their best, that have trained, that have sacrificed, that have given up so much to be here right now. And I want you to know that they're normal people and that they have other things that they love and care about that they're balancing while they're doing this. Yeah, I think that's really important for for like the average recreational runner to know about because I think it forges a, a deeper connection. Uh, and, and I'd love to know more specifically, just because it, it kind of makes me smile, when you are commentating and you are thinking to yourself, I am trying to get people to not change the television channel right now, what are you doing to 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 en- enable that in real life? I'm just trying to let them know what we're seeing, how exciting it is, what this person has overcome. Um, we would laugh at the Olympics because once we're halfway through the race, I'm standing up, I'd kick my chair back. So it got to the point where they just pull my chair out from beneath me. But that's not even like me trying. I genuinely think track and field is just so exciting. I feel like the 10,000 is just as exciting as the 1500. And I just want people to feel that. I want them to understand like these people have been out there for 8,000 meters running at 440 pace for the women or, you know, so much faster than that for the men. And they're still going to kick. They're still going to find something else. They're still going to explode in another K and just how amazing they are as athletes. And I just think it's so exciting. It's funny because sometimes the feedback is like, tell us more about the splits or tell us more about PRs. And that's the hardcore running fans that know the sport. What I'm trying to do is appease them, but also bring in new people that are flipping through and they're like, wait, that that woman has a baby and she won the Olympics? Well, I got to see what happens here. So I'm trying to sort of ride both waves of giving you the hardcore information, but also getting other people who don't know the hardcore information. Like if I say they just split a 60, that doesn't mean anything to them, right? So I'm trying to live in both worlds, which can be tough, but I try. Yeah, I was just having a conversation with someone about sports and what sports I like to watch. And I said, like, I'm a weird person to ask this question because, you know, I think baseball is one of the most boring sports to watch in the world, but I love watching a 10K on the track. And they're like, really? Why? It's like 28 minutes or so of just running around in circles. And it was hard for me to communicate the drama and the excitement and and all the storylines that could be happening on the track at that very moment. So I recognize that that is a very difficult job. But as you know, just a fan of track, I can kind of sense how excited you are just reminiscing about kicking your chair back and you know, getting heated as a race is is going off. That's just so exciting. It is exciting. It's hard too because then they'll be like, Oh, we're going to commercial. And I'm like, what? Why are we going to commercial right now? You know, Um, and so it's this whole dance of things that have to happen. Like they have to have the commercial because we have to have the advertising because we have to pay for the broadcast. And so it's been a whole world of learning things at first. I'd just be like, no, we're not, we can't cut now. There's only four laps of the steeple to go, you know? And they're like, no, 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 we have to cut now or we can't have this up. So there's been a lot of learning for me too, because I know we get a lot of feedback of cutting out of races. Um, and unfortunately on live TV, you have to do that. So it's been an, it's just been an interesting experience overall. Maybe we can talk about that for just a moment. Cause I know that that is like every running fans. Number one complaint oh, is that, terrible. you know, they'll, they'll cut away from the, the 800 after 200 meters and they'll come back with 200 to go or, you know, something similar with four laps to go in the steeplechase, you know, oh my, I'm like starting to have nervous sweats, just thinking about missing it. Can you tell us why that 
is happening and maybe assuage some of our anxiety around it as track fans? Yeah. So I will say that, trust me, I hear you. And the 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 uh, commercial on the side and the running the distance races continued while we're in commercial break. If I'm on a broadcast, I'm always going to be asking for that. But also I don't, I'm like really, really low on the totem pole. So I'm always going to be fighting for that, but that doesn't mean I'm going to get it. It's hard because we have these broadcast windows and so many things have to be done in that window. So you know who, even we complain as distance runners and I get it because we cut away and it's a small picture. We're trying to see what's happening during commercial, but field events get the worst. Like Trey Hardy will have all of this stuff ready to go. And then there's a false start in the 400 and they're like, sorry, Trey, field scrapped. You know, I mean, it's just so crazy because there's just not enough time to put it in. And so I will promise you that if I'm on a broadcast, I'm always going to be fighting for picture to remain up while we go to commercial break. And I think that's pretty much becoming standard. Um, But, you know, like when I called a couple diamond leagues last year, it would cut away and I wouldn't see it. I couldn't see what was happening in the race. So like all of a sudden we come back and they're like, well, Kara, what do you, who's going to win this 5,000? And I'm like, I don't know, because I don't know what's happening. I don't know what lap they're on. I don't know anything. Um, so that is really hard. Diamond leagues are tough, but it, it's hard because they have to fit in all these things. And if I could, I, I could show everybody, I have like a, the thing from pre every 10 seconds is mapped out before we even go on air. That's how tight these windows are. And so if somebody falls start, if I talk a little too long, if the whole thing gets thrown off and now we have to like figure out where to move this and move this and move this, I would never want to be a producer. It is such a hard job. And, you know, I think it's one thing when it's on like USATF TV and where it's just the full race. That is so fun because I mean, I've never, I've never gotten hired for that, but it's fun to watch because you can just talk. We can see everything. We can watch everything unfold. I mean, how exciting were those two 10,000 meters at USA's? They were incredible. But in the but in the live broadcast world, it just doesn't work that way. You got to get away, you got to show the advertising, you got to fit in the field, you got to do this. And so it sometimes I do want to pull my hair out. But there's no one really to blame. It's just the nature of the beast. Yeah, I know. And I I look at a sport like basketball or football, where they literally pause the game for commercials, because the commercials are the most important part. And with track, they don't pause the races, because the races are the most important part. And there's likely no easy fix for that. But uh, thanks for speaking to it, because I know that a lot of people, (laughs) a lot of people who don't have any insight into that world, I know, get very upset that their races get cut off at certain oh. points and you can't see the Me whole thing. Too. Before last year, I would be like, this is crazy. What are they talking about? How'd you mess that up? Why'd you do this? And now I'm like, I will never, ever judge a broadcast. I could, you can judge, maybe you didn't like the overall tone or whatever, but I would never judge someone who's actually speaking because you have people in your ear yelling, wrap it up here, wrap it up here. We have to go to commercial. And it's just like, ah. um, it's a difficult, it's a difficult job or producing a track meet is difficult. And I know that we have lack of viewership. So again, that's why I feel pressure that when I'm on there, I do a really good job so that we keep getting viewership and we keep getting opportunities to show track on TV. Yeah. Whenever I saw track on TV as a kid, I always just got so excited because it never happened. So I was like, oh my God, it's like Christmas come early. This is wonderful. And, And speaking about how to get viewers, I want to talk about 
good races. What do you think makes a good race? What makes a race just so exciting to watch? And I know it's not just a fast race. Yeah, I think fast races can be exciting, but it unless you've run that exact distance and you know the splits, it doesn't you just know that they're running fast. I mean, I think that both 10,000s at the US Championship last year or last week were so exciting. We have people battling back and forth. We have the newcomers. We have like that women's race that battled for third. You wanted them both to make it. But also up front, you have someone coming back from Achilles surgery. You have someone who's just bursting onto the scene and taking control. The men's race, all of the drama, Woody getting his horrible side ache, having to drop out, cheering people on, watching the the meet, the pace, pick up, pick up, pick up. Um, can Joe actually pull this off? Oh, no, here comes Grant. Grant's the one with the kick and like explaining all that. I love head-to-head races. That's why I'll always love Boston or New York over Chicago and a London because I like seeing people gut it out. I like championship races better than I like time trial races. And that's just my preference. But I like seeing someone rise above or someone break out of the woodwork because, you know, that's what when you're an athlete and you're training, you're always training for those moments. And I love that we get to see those moments. And I, I'll always just love championship racing over time trialing. Time trialing is exciting. You get to see how fast the human body can go. But but when you see people grueling it out head to head, you see their you literally see their heart. You know, you can see it on their face, in their body. They are trying so hard. And that's what I love to see. I love races like that. Is it different as a viewer than it was as a competitor? Do you favor certain types of races as an athlete that now that you're, you know, more watching races, you'd like to see a different kind of race? I think I, I think I'm biased because I always liked racing championship style races. I never was the fastest. I never had an American record. Um, I never had, you know, a super fast time. But if you, if we have to think on our feet and we have to respond to each other, all of a sudden I have a chance. And so that's what I always really loved about racing. Um, and so I think I, those are why I favor those races because it's not so clear cut. Like we know no one can run faster than this time, but she's the, or he's the only person that can do that. And now we'll just, everyone else will follow behind. It's like everyone actually does have a chance and people are making moves and people have to decide if it's real or not. And that's the way I really like to race because I felt like, Ooh, I actually have a shot today. Whereas if they were going to go try to run 215 or 216 or 217, I don't have a shot. Yeah, I think adding that human drama to the race is really what makes it something special, not just to experience in the race as a competitor, but also as someone who's a fan of the sport, watching the race and and maybe even commenting on the race. And, And maybe that's why you're so good at what you do is because you love this. This is what you have gravitated toward your entire competitive career. And now you're on the other side of things talking about the drama that's unfolding on the track and how exciting that is. I remember calling the men's 5,000 in Tokyo and I was like, you know, everyone was in the front. There was lots of jostling. Things were happening. There were breakaways. And I kept doing on my talk back button, like Mohamed looks so good. Mohamed looks so good. And then when there's like 200 to go, I'm not supposed to speak anymore. That's just for play by play. But I'm like, in Lee Diffie's face pointing at Mohamed. I'm like, he's going to medal. He's coming so hard. I, I, you know, and so that's what I love is I, I can kind of not always, obviously, but I can kind of spot that because I recognize it in my own experience. 
Oh, Carrie, you're getting me excited for track right now. I need, I need to go watch a track race. <laughs> There's a lot coming up. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that. What do you have going on this summer? Are you uh, are you going to be commenting on more more track meets? Yeah, I'm going to be um, doing the U.S. Championships. Um, although the distance coverage is only in the broadcast the last two days, so just the finals really. And then I'm going to be calling the world championships. So I'm not sure what that's going to look like, how much, uh, how much we'll be covering. I hope we're covering a ton. It's historic. It's the first time that us has hosted the world championships. So I hope that we're showing all the heats and prelims, but I'm not sure yet what that looks like, but yeah, just USA's and world championships. And then in the fall, uh, I've committed to Boston and Chicago as well. All right. That's going to be so exciting. Yeah. I mean, I guess Boston's next year. So I've committed to Chicago this fall. Yeah. Okay. I was going to, I was going to ask about that, but I think yeah. <laughs> you've got I'm a lot like, of no, no, Boston. We already had two Boston's in six months. It's going to be a full year now. Yes. <laughs> now, if folks want to follow along with all of your adventures, uh, whether it's running or Colin races, where can they find you? Um, I, I post the most on Instagram and it's just at Kara Goucher, but they'll, you'll see a ton of posting about my relationship with running, which has really changed over the years, you'll also see a ton of my child. <laughs> like I started Instagram to have it strictly be like a my child account. Um, but I found I like it better. I really like Twitter. It's hot takes. It's easy information. But I like Instagram because you're allowed to sort of leave an impression with the photo or a personal impression. And so Instagram has really become my favorite way of communicating with people. All right. Well, we will include links to your social media profiles and your website in the show notes on the Strength Running website. Kara Goucher, thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. It was fun. Thanks for listening in, my friends. If you found value in this podcast, I would so appreciate a review in Apple Music or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you want more running mantras like Kara and I talked about, go to strengthrunning.com slash mantras. Now, if you love this podcast, please consider supporting our sponsors who help make it possible. Inside Tracker is a company that I've been working with for years and I hope to continue for years to come. They're one of the most reputable personal blood testing companies that you can find. Their goal is to help you analyze your body's biomarkers like stress hormones, testosterone, vitamin D, sex hormones, mineral levels, and more. And using your personal data, they create optimal ranges for each of these biomarkers. So if you're outside of your optimal zone, they have an ultra-personalized nutrition platform that gives you science-backed suggestions for moving into the preferred zone. This helps you avoid any health problems, it optimizes your training, improves your performances, and reduces your injury risk while improving your recovery. I love it. Now, I've personally gotten three of their ultimate tests for myself, and I've found that the process is very easy, it's simple, and if you haven't gotten one of these tests before, it can be very eye-opening. Now, they also have at-home testing, which only takes about 15 minutes. They come to your house, they do the entire blood draw right then and there. Go to insidetracker.com slash strengthrunning to see how you can get 25% off site-wide on any personalized blood test that they offer. Of all the purchases you can make for your running, this one can actually improve your performances by letting you in on what's going on inside your body. It's a wonderful opportunity, and all those details can be seen at insidetracker.com slash strengthrunning. Also, don't miss the environmentally friendly sun care products from Tannery Outdoors at tannery.com. 
Code Jason will also save you 10% off anything in their store. Now, a lot of you know that I live in Denver, Colorado. Here in the Mile High City, the sun is amazingly strong. It's wonderful, but I've never experienced anything like it outside of tropical places near the equator. And even though putting on sunscreen is something I loathe, I've had to make it a habit every day at these altitudes. Tannery Outdoors offers clean sun care products that were made by runners for runners. They have SPF lip balms, post-sun moisturizers that replenish all the moisture and hydration your skin loses when you're exposed to the sun on those longer runs. All their products are also reef safe, never tested on animals, and in sustainable packaging. Protect the planet while you protect your skin. It's a win-win. Plus, their lip balms and sunscreen are sweat and waterproof for 80 minutes. They just released a new traditional sunscreen, and they have another product dropping soon. You can check them out at tanry.com. That's T-A-N-R-I.com. And if you use code Jason, you'll save 10% on anything in their shop. Thanks for being here, my friends. Don't hesitate to reach out if you have any questions, and we'll be in touch soon.